0: Dear Heavenly Father, I ask, Father, that your spirit would guide my words this morning. I ask that the teaching, Father, would be in accordance with your will and and according to your desires, that it would enshrine itself upon the hearts of those who hear it, that its purpose, Father, would be fulfilled in their hearing. All the things you might do and accomplish through it, Father, would be to your glory, and, and in the end, Father, my participation in this process would be would not even register a mention, Father, for you would get all the glory. And we pray, Lord, that um, most of all what we hear would draw us closer to you so that we might serve you with more of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A uh, Sunday school teacher was teaching one time to a bunch of teens and youth in a Sunday school program, and she was trying to make sure they understood salvation by grace through faith alone. And She asked the class, well, if I sold my house, sold my car, had a big garage sale, sold everything that I owned, and then I took all of that money that I made and I gave it to the church, would I go to heaven? And she was pleased to hear all of the children scream out in unison, no, which was the right answer, of course. And then just to make sure she tested them, pushed them a little further. She asked, well, what if I cleaned the church every day? What if I volunteered to serve in a lot of different ways, mowing the lawn and keeping everything neat and tidy and so on? Would that get me into heaven? Once again, the right answer comes back. No. Well, now she's on to where she wants to go. She says, well, then how do I get to heaven? And in the back of the room, a little five-year-old raises his hand and says, well, you got to get dead first. And chapter two of Hebrews is all about getting dead to get to heaven, about death being a means to heaven. Specifically, this is a chapter in which the writer explains why the Lord of all creation, Christ himself, Had to take a form that is less than an angel, and more than that, he had to die. As we have already learned, the the stumbling block in the early Jewish church was their inability to grasp how Jesus could be considered greater than an angel, and yet, he appeared to us in a form that is evidently less than an angel. How do they square up those two details? The superiority of Christ and his message was a tough pill to swallow for these folks when it came in the form of a frail human man who was crucified by Roman enemies. It's just a hard disconnect for them to reconcile. The storyline of Jesus contradicted their expectations for the Messiah, for who they thought he would be and for how they thought he would rule when he came to earth, this all-powerful man who God would send to vanquish their enemies. That's who they wanted. That's who they expected. That's not who they got, at least not in their minds. And yet they were being told by the apostles, that guy, that Messiah, has the preeminent message of salvation greater than anything that's ever been delivered before by prophets, by angels, and the like. That's a hard message for them to accept. And it had left some in the church outside grace, outside the gospel, unable to accept Christ as Messiah. So some Jews in the early church, and I say in the church, meaning they were in the building, they were participating, some of them thought that the angels were more majestic and therefore more important than Christ. And therefore, the message that they delivered, specifically the law of Moses given through angels, was itself a more important message than the new covenant delivered through Christ. So some Jews were relying on their Jewish heritage and on their law for their salvation, which is no salvation at all. And they had not embraced Christ as Lord. That's what we saw last week. That concerned this writer for obvious reasons. And so it prompted him to issue that warning at the very outset of this chapter. We saw last week he issued that warning that they must pay closer attention to what they have heard through Christ. And if they didn't, if you remember, the the consequence, though unstated, was clearly implied. That if you ignore the law of Moses and died physically, then you can expect if you ignore the greater thing delivered by Christ, then you will suffer an even greater penalty than physical death, that is, spiritual death. Well, now, having warned them of this fact, he is now about to go through the rest of this chapter, chapter two, to explain why it was that Jesus had to come to earth in a lowly form as a man and determined to die. Why is that? A necessity for this Messiah. And like before, he's going to return to going to the Old Testament scriptures to support or to prove his point. Before we look at his arguments in this chapter, let's take a moment to appreciate that methodology for a minute. I don't want to run too far and too fast without taking a moment to observe this guy's method, this writer. He always works from the Bible or in his case, from the Old Testament to make his case. He backs up his argument by finding scriptures that say what he is trying to argue, what he is trying to say. Equally importantly, he uses these scriptures in context. He uses them in the way that the original author intended that they would be read and understood. He doesn't manipulate them. He doesn't take them out of the context and use them in some weird way. He actually explains them as they were intended to be understood. In other words, the writer's point in using these scriptures is the point of the author of those scriptures. And in that way, he shows us all how we should proceed in apologetics, apologetics, apologetics is a fancy word that just means the process of making reasoned arguments to justify a religious doctrine or point of view, reasoned arguments to justify a religious point of view, proving to someone else that what you believe is true. What is our proof of what we believe? Where do we go to show something is true when we're talking about faith? Well, the Bible is our proof. In the letter of Hebrews, you should take note of the fact that this guy is like an attorney. He's like a prosecutor making his case before a judge and jury, proving the elements of a case piece by piece. And his proof is not eyewitnesses necessarily, though he mentions them at times. And it's not forensic evidence. It's the fact that what he is saying lines up with scripture given beforehand with the Old Testament prophets. He does not base his proof on experience. Apologetics, friends, is not proving what you believe by what you personally have experienced. I think it's often the case that we substitute testimonies for apologetics. Now, there's a role for a testimony. Absolutely. And there is benefit in it. But the role of a testimony is to the edification of the saints. It is not to the persuasion of the unbeliever. Romans does not say faith comes by hearing and hearing by testimonies. Romans says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So the word, the proof of our faith is the word of God, the testimony of scripture. That is the means of proving what we believe to those who know that truth. Testimonies are a source of edification, of strengthening, of encouragement. And of course, in the midst of proving our faith through the Bible, we can introduce testimonies as well. Yes, but don't rely on them. Similarly, we don't rely on our feelings I remember uh, Mormons come to the door, if you've seen them at your house, you'll notice they have a very similar pattern. They do the same thing because they're trained to do it everywhere they go. And they typically tell you that if you search your heart and pray, you'll know that what I'm saying is true. You'll feel it as if you'll just suddenly agree with them. You will not agree that what they are saying is true just because your feelings align with them. That is not the way we discern truth. So we don't come to the truth by feelings. We don't come there by experience, nor do we come there by heritage or by family history. That's the Jewish mindset. I was born a Jew, so I'm a Jew, so the Jewish way is right. There's a similar mindset in Catholicism, in the Catholic way of thinking. I grew up Catholic. So why was I Catholic? Because my parents were. Because I grew up in a Catholic home. Those things mean nothing to God, and and they certainly don't substitute for saving faith. If you want to defend your faith before others, you have to be, we have to be, students of the Bible. Isn't that the ultimate consequence of what we're saying here? You can't just read it You have to remember it and you have to understand it, because how else can you use it effectively in proof of anything if it's only something that's gone in your head and out the other ear? Notice the writer of this letter, how often and we'll see this as we go through the whole letter. You've already seen it, though, in the first two chapters, how this writer is so quick to grab quote after quote after quote from the Old Testament in support of what he's teaching concerning Christian doctrine. And friends, it's almost certainly the case that this guy, whoever he was, did not have a whole bunch of scrolls sitting next to him or an iPad so that every time he needed a quote, he just whipped it out and searched for it and then Googled and found it. But the breadth of things he quotes from in the Old Testament is remarkable. He's going to go all over the place before this letter is over. It's almost a certainty he did not have access to that many scrolls. So where did he come up with all the quotes? His noggin. You know, it was not uncommon for men who were schooled in rabbinic ways to be trained for the duty of being a rabbi. It was not uncommon for those people to have memorized the entire Old Testament by the time that they were in their early teens. The whole of it. In fact, there's a gentleman I know who teaches of his father's experience, his father being trained for one of these high duties of religious service in the Jewish tradition where it was such a stringent requirement that he'd be memorizing the Old Testament that it went beyond what you and I would even think of as memorizing. It went to the point where his final exam at the age of 18 was to be given the Jewish Bible, which would basically be our Old Testament, bound in a book form like this one, closed like this one, and the instructor would drive a nail through the book cover to cover in its closed form And give this to the student who then had to recite every word across every page that the nail penetrated through the book. So they're not just memorizing what is said. They're memorizing where it sits on the page. How many hours does that take? Now, unfortunately or ironically, they knew the book like that, but they didn't know it like this. They didn't understand who it was talking about. They didn't understand saving faith. That's the pharisaical way of understanding it, perhaps. But the point is the same, right? They could pull from memory quotes specific to issues they needed to know or having to argue or to to point out. That's what you see this writer doing here. Now, today, friends, we have access to tools and technology that makes it much easier to locate scripture that we're looking for without memorizing the entire Bible, although I am not suggesting that an effort at memorizing the Bible would be wasted effort. Far from it. But. We still have access to the content now in a rapid way, in an efficient way, but that does not substitute for an intimate knowledge of what it means, of what it says. In other words, the fact that I have a Bible on my iPad doesn't tell me where to go when I need something that's relevant in some conversation. I still have to know where it is basically or that it's even there to begin with. Have you ever watched two Christians arguing over scripture or doctrine and yet it's evident neither of them really understands the Bible? Unfortunately, I've had that experience once too often. And to borrow from an old phrase, it's like a battle of wits between two unarmed men. And you feel for them, really, because they have a passion, they have a zeal. But as Paul says in Romans, it's not in accordance with knowledge. And so it's, it's lacking an ability to get somewhere good. It usually just dissolves into acrimony. You can't expect, we can't expect to fulfill our roles as ambassadors for Christ into the world if we aren't willing to learn the job Properly, which takes effort, and the training manual for representing Christ is the Bible. This is what you have to know to do the job, more or less. You can't rely on what I tell you, you can't rely on what another teacher tells you. I mean, hopefully, you're going to learn something from teachers and from me as well, and that's going to guide you in your own studies, but listening to me or anyone else doesn't substitute for regular, personal, in-depth study of the Bible. Because, first of all, most of you are only listening to it about half the time in the room we're in. It's just the nature of things. People's minds wander. It happens. Even if you did listen to all of it, how much do you retain? There's a big difference between study, seeing it on the page, reading it, than there is just letting someone else tell you in a moment. I mean, they're both good, but there's there's both needed. As Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that lies within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. He says, always be ready. Being ready is the work of this. Being ready is the effort. It's what you do before the moment actually comes. And we're doing part of that here. But obviously, as you look at this letter, the writer was ready Because as he writes this letter, absent the scrolls that must have supported his work, he had it in his head, he had it in his heart. When he needed to make the argument, it was there, and he had the word. And so now with that, he begins to explain the necessity of Christ becoming lower than angels for our sake. Look at verses 5 through 8 of chapter 2. He says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. He begins here by introducing a quote from Psalms 8. And in this quote from Psalms 8, the Bible says that angels are never appointed by God to rule over the kingdom to come. Instead, the psalmist says that the kingdom promised by God will be ruled by, and notice the term, the Son of Man. In fact, he just uses what is man that you remember him or the Son of Man that you are concerned about him. He calls the future ruler of the kingdom on earth the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man is a messianic term, and we know that from Daniel the book of Daniel, chapter 7, is where we see it connected to the Messiah most clearly. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, it says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Who will rule the the kingdom to come, the everlasting kingdom to come? It is one like a son of man. Now, by drawing our attention to the Messianic term son of man, by using that term in quoting from Psalms, this writer has put in the foreground the fact that the Messiah was always to be a man born of a woman, a son of man in that respect. This is not news. To the readers in his day, it was news. They didn't think this was going to happen. But the writer very smartly goes back into their Old Testament and says, you know, if you'd only read your Old Testament a little more closely, you might have noticed that your Messiah was always called a son of man. And yet Daniel tells us that this very same son of man would rule over the very creation itself. So these two things are not contradictory. They are, in fact, what scripture says we should expect. In the Psalms, the psalmist is raising the very same question that the skeptical readers of the writer's day were asking themselves. And what was that question? How can God give such high regard to a mere man? How can we consider him to be Lord? If the son is to be so powerful, his message to be so important, why did he come in such a lowly way? That's exactly the same problem that the Jews in this day were dealing with. And the answer to that dilemma can come in one of two ways. Their answer was to say, well... The reason he came in such a lowly way is because he's not as important as angels. That's the wrong answer. The psalmist gave a different answer, which is why the writer quoted from him. The psalmist said that the father made Christ to be lower than the angels, and yet only for a short time. A short time is a reference to Christ's time of walking on the earth in his first coming. During that time, Jesus was no less God, but he took a form that is less than he was. It's in the form of man who is definitively less than an angel, less than God in our physical form. That's a given. So if Jesus is so great, why did he look so lowly? The answer from the psalmist is because the father made him that way. It was in obedience to the father. And then the psalmist concludes in that part that he quoted. The psalmist says his time living lower than angels is not permanent. It was temporary. It will give way... Later, to an eternity in which he will have his full power, full glory and honor, he will not be lower than anyone. Everyone will be lower than he is. He says at the end that everything will be put in subjection to Christ. So, in other words, if you're a little bothered by the fact that Jesus walked around looking so humble and was put to death by Romans, don't worry, that's temporary. The long-term plan is very different. And just to be sure you get the point, I love the way the writer adds at the end of verse 8, he, he stops the quote, and then he throws in his own little point at the end. He says, now look, friends, when the Father says that everything is going to be subject to Christ, he means everything. Paul says elsewhere in Scripture, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Christ on one day to come. And when he means everyone, he says every unbeliever is going to say that. Every demon is going to say that. Even the Antichrist himself is going to bow his knee and confess Christ. Even Satan will bow to Christ and confess Christ. There will be no one not subject to Christ, according to what was just been written. Now, those bows will not be bows of faith. They will be the result of Christ's authority and power. They will be bows of requirement. They will not have a choice. And as such, they're not saving moments of faith for these particular people I just mentioned. Nonetheless, it will happen. And all of this is true, despite the fact that Jesus chose to come temporarily in a form lower than angels. This is an example, by the way, of the problem of perspective, which is an inherent problem for any created being. Men and women, you and I, we cannot properly assess God's plans from our limited vantage point. We just don't have the capacity to do it. The Pharisees of Jesus' day, for example, could not accurately assess Jesus' importance based on what they could see in the day that they saw him, which is why they were off in a different world thinking him not to be who he said he was. Their perspective couldn't grasp the idea that the Creator could stand before them in the form of man. But he did. And by that same token, you and I cannot appreciate the coming glory of the kingdom and the peace that will come with it, and the joy that will come with it, and the glory that will come with it by observing the world we live in today. It's impossible. And yet, that's what Christians do sometimes. That's what we all are prone to do. We are prone to ask ourselves about the future by looking at today. What do I mean? Well, there are Christians today who are intent on achieving their best life now. Well, there's at least people writing books about it. There are Christians who want prosperity in this world. There are people who think that the kingdom has already arrived and we will make the best of what we have here. That's a perspective problem to say nothing of a doctrinal problem, but it begins with a perspective problem. The perspective is I see this now I have to figure out how to make this the right and happy place I want. But the Bible speaks of an entirely different expectation, entirely different perspective. The perspective of scripture is eternal, looking past the here and now and by faith alone, accepting that what you see is not what is true. It exists for a time, but that's not truth in the eternal sense. We're to rely instead on the word of God, not on our own limited perspective and our limited understanding. We trust in faith, what God has said. We do not go by sight in what we can see in our day today. That's why Proverbs says in Proverbs three, five through seven, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. If we rest on what the Bible says, then we will have what we need in order to see the world properly and to appreciate history with eyes for eternity. Just as the writer says, we do not yet see Jesus ruling the world. But friends, that doesn't mean he isn't coming. That doesn't mean he won't rule. It just means he's not ruling yet. Just because you don't see what you think should be now doesn't mean it won't happen. And it's just as sure now as it will be in the future day. Just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean it won't. Our perspective is the problem. So we rely on the word of God. So let's get to the central question that's at issue in this chapter now that the writer has set it up. And that central question is, Okay, the father made him lower than angels. He still will one day rule. Got it. But why? Why did he have to be made lower than an angel? Why did the father ask him to come in that form? So the writer now gives us the explanation in the end of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. But we do not see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation, sufferings. So in answer to the question, why did Jesus have to become lower than angels? The writer begins with this explanation. All right, so let's parse out verses 9 and 10. We do not see him who is made for a while lower. We know that's Jesus. And by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's Jesus tasting death. So it involves death. And then verse 10, him says, In verse 10, it was fitting for him. The him in this second verse is the father. The father is the one who drives the plan of redemption. The writer says it is fitting for the father to do what he did. And the word for fitting in Greek means something is clearly evident, clearly seen. That's really what the word in Greek means. It is clearly evident. Or another way to say it is we understand what has happened. Now, looking back on it. In the light of Old Testament scripture, and in seeing it now, we can clearly understand why the father had to do it. In hindsight, it makes sense. It is fitting that the father chose to do this thing of making his son lower than an angel. And that leads us to the next person in the sentence, this author, that is Christ. The Greek word for author there is a compound Greek word. It's two Greek words sandwiched together. And these two individual words, when you take them apart, mean originator and leader. He is the originator leader. He is the one who began it and he is the one who pioneered it, who led us through it, who charted the course for us. And we can see that clearly. He's the first one to die and resurrect to glory. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. And by his going first, he makes a way available for all of us to follow him by faith. So he is the author of salvation in that sense. He is the originator, the pioneer. Now, how was he the author of our salvation in those ways. Notice that the writer next says that he became the author by being perfected through suffering. Now this causes some folks to wonder, now what is it about Christ that needed perfecting? Well, the word suffering, starting with that word, suffering refers to Jesus' torturous death, not just the time before he died, but the whole process to include death. So his suffering was the death process, and then it says he was perfected by that suffering. The word here in Greek for perfected, it's not the traditional word. Traditionally, it would be the word rue which is completed. That's not exactly the word here. This word means to being brought to an end or to have been accomplished. That's the sense of it here. So putting it in context, Jesus's suffering brought something to an end. It accomplished something. Not that Jesus himself was made perfect. He was already perfect. But his work of suffering accomplished something in authoring our salvation, and then finally it says this was done so that some group would benefit from his work. Now that group is you and I, obviously, those who believe in Christ, the children of God, the men and women who are of faith. So, he said in verses 9 and 10, he said, Jesus became like us, became man, was lowered than angels, lowered from the point of view of an angel, and did so, so that... He could achieve something through suffering and whatever that achievement or accomplishment is, it allowed us to enjoy the salvation that comes from it. All right, that's still not the full answer, but it's getting close. Next section, verses 11 through 13, the writer says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. So what the writer is now saying is Jesus took on the same form as those he was called to save. He became like his brethren. Brethren just means brothers and sisters. He became like his brothers, he became like his sisters, he became man. And in Psalms 22, the writer shows proof here that the Son was always expected to come in the form of mankind so that he could call us brethren. It would have been impossible for Jesus to say you and I were his brethren if he had never taken the form of men. So now we're getting to the heart of the issue of why Jesus was made lower than angels. First, he came in obedience to the Father. It was the Father who made him do it. It wasn't a reflection of Jesus' lack of worth or less honor or any of that stuff. It was purposeful, and it was fitting that the Father do it. Secondly, he was made lower than angels. He was made in the form of man so that he could experience suffering. Jesus had to enter into the creation in the form of man so that he could experience suffering that is common to all men, including death itself, which is part of that suffering. You realize that Jesus could never have experienced those things if he didn't become men. God in heaven does not suffer. God in heaven does not die. The only way he can experience suffering and death is if he enters into a form that is itself subjected to suffering and death. That is the body that we have. Third, he humbled himself in this way so that he could become an author of salvation for you and I. So that he could be like the brethren that he came to save. And then finally, he authored our salvation by bringing to an end something that stands in the way of our salvation. That's the one piece We don't have yet. What is it that he accomplished or brought to an end through his death and suffering process that stands between you and I and salvation? There's something he had to do, and that's what we hear next from the writer. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, therefore, concluding his argument, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now we're getting to the key issue, the heart of why he had to become human. The answer is it's a matter of flesh and blood and death and the devil. That's what it's about. Like the joke said, right? you got to get dead first. All the children of God, you and I, all the children of God, share in flesh and blood. The Greek word for share means to participate in. We all participate in this experience of life in which we live in a physical body. That is the human experience. The human experience is flesh and blood. We're not angelic. We're not spirit only. We have bodies. We have blood. That makes us unique in that respect. That's what we all share in. And so Jesus took that form upon himself so that he'd be like us, like the brethren. And he did so to solve a problem that is unique to flesh and blood. A problem that can only be solved if you are in a bodily form. And that problem is the problem of death. Death itself, Paul says in Romans 5.12, is the result of sin. Paul says, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin So death spread to all men because all sinned. So flesh and blood, you and I, we experience physical death and after spiritual death, if we don't come to know Christ, because we are in a fleshly body that lives under the curse of death because of sin. That's our experience. The author of sin itself is the devil. All who sin share in the same fate as the devil That common destiny, the writer says, leads us to fear death and that fear produces a kind of slavery. All mankind lives in fear of death and of what follows. And that fear is so great. It is all consuming. And when you're driven by fear, friends, you become a slave of that fear. If you are fearful of Dying in a plane crash, to use something that's in the news these days, then you won't fly, will you? Which means you might miss out on the chance to visit family reunions at a great distance. You'll never see the other side of the world. Don't make these concessions in your life because you are a slave to a fear, which traces itself to death. If you fear of just getting older. And maybe you looking like you're getting older. It will consume how you treat your body and how you spend money to make yourself look like you're not actually getting older, even though everyone knows you are. And to pretend you won't die. And the craziest of us will come up with ideas like maybe someone can freeze my body and bring me back to life later. It's all in reaction to fear of death and the behaviors that stem from it are a form of slavery, being constrained. Being forced by your fears to live ways that are not productive and healthy. To do things you wouldn't otherwise do except for the fact that you're in slavery to a fear. Whenever we're driven by our fears, we become a slave to the one who produces that fear. We no longer make our decisions and set our priorities based on reason, much less by the leading of the spirit. It's entirely a flesh issue. We do whatever we can. We spend whatever we can. We go wherever we can to avoid the thing we fear. If we fear financial ruin, we'll we'll become fixated on money and on making money or saving money. You notice how people who live through the Great Depression are often people who have a hard time letting go of anything. They're living in a slavery to that fear. If you fear rejection, you might avoid relationships or you might hold on to very unhealthy ones too long. If you fear insects, you won't go camping. If you fear sharks, you'll stay away from the beach. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. But what is behind every one of those fears? Injury, pain, death, the end of everything. If you live in fear of death, friends, there's no easy solution, is there? I mean, I can avoid insects by not going outside, and I might be able to avoid sharks by not going in the water. But how do you avoid death? You see the problem with that fear? That's the all-encompassing, all-consuming, unavoidable fear. Because we are all born sinful, our conscience and our flesh is forever aware of a jeopardy before a just and holy God. By faith through the influence of the spirit we can come to know that's no longer our future certainly, but that awareness in our body puts us at the mercy of the enemy the writer says. How is that true? Well, there is no one more masterful at manipulating the fears of men and women than the devil himself. He is the craftiest of all the creation, we're told in in Genesis. And for the unbeliever who does not have the the compass guide of the spirit inside them, for that person, they are forever at the disposal of an enemy who will lead them further astray by manipulating that fear of death at every turn to do whatever he wants with their lives. And he does it through lies. Lies. He lies to the unbeliever and saying death is the end of everything. There's no God. There's no judgment. It's just the end. So this is all you're going to have. And so as a result, we should get everything we can while we can in greed and selfishness and make the most of life. He leads to thoughts of humanism and evolution and atheism and rampant hedonism, because after all, if this is the only life you got, you might as well live it to the fullest. There's no judgment coming. To others, he lies by saying death is too horrible to consider. And so it shouldn't even be talked about at all. That's not a polite conversation. So unbelievers won't confront death and the subject of death head on. They'll pretend as if they're just going to ignore their dying bodies and hope that nothing ever happens, which is a folly. And most of all, he lies that everyone goes to heaven. He lies. That death is not a problem to be solved because it's just a mystery. And at the end of it all, we'll probably all be in the same place anyway. So don't give your sin a second thought. You're good enough as you are. It's all about the enemy lying to a flesh and blood population who understand the fear of death and don't know how to escape it. Jesus, the writer says, came to suffer as a man, and through his suffering and death, he could bring to an end. He could accomplish that judgment for us so that we no longer stand in fear of death and therefore are no longer susceptible to the manipulation of an enemy who himself is subject to that same penalty. Paul says in Philippians 2, 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then, as we know, when his suffering was done, he rose from the grave and he promises the brethren, those who are also of flesh and blood, that we can be sanctified in the same way by faith in him, by trust in Christ. You will share the same outcome he pioneered for us in authoring our salvation. You will be raised from the dead and you will not receive the punishment that you are due. It fell on him instead. So now, having been freed from a fear of death and the judgment that follows, you're no longer susceptible to the schemes of the enemy or should not be. You can live without fear of death, with no regard for the enemy's lies. You're free to serve Christ. You can live out the rest of your days knowing that death simply ushers you into glory. So what's there to be afraid of? I mean, test that in your own heart. I know we all have some fear of death. It's natural because the flesh is still present in that way. But friends, you don't have to be ruled by your flesh. That's a choice. We may not perceive it as such. You can know that you have no fear of death, that the day of your death was appointed before you were born. You're doing nothing to change it, not by your fear and not by your irrational choices in response to your fear. Not by how you walk across the street, not by how fast you drive, not by what planes you take, not by what pills you take. You're not changing those factors. You're just living in slavery to a fear that has already been won for you with Christ on the cross. Friends, do you fear death? My question to you is why? Of what harm is death to you? Christian, none. I mean, why do you give back to the devil the victory That the Lord won for you on the cross in that regard. Why do you live as though death brings a penalty, which has already been given to Christ? You worry you'll miss things you loved here on earth. Do you really think that what we'll find on the other side of glory will cause us to pine away for what we had here? Do you miss relationships? Well, friends, the Bible says our family is those who know the Lord, not those that were born physically. And that will be what we know in eternity. Now, the devil knows you don't suffer a penalty for death because of your faith. He understands that as well as anyone does. But if he can still cause you to live in fear, he'll be just as happy because it neutralizes you on the spiritual battlefield. Christians who live in fear of dying or are preoccupied with matters of death can become so distracted by that that they cannot see past it to serve God. They will waste days and brain cycles and emotional cycles focused on the wrong things. Let's not live that way. The answer to the question, why did Jesus come lower than angels? The answer is he had to defeat the enemy and the death that the enemy brought upon us for sin and the fear that it engendered to make us a slave. And he put all of that to end when he conquered death. And he couldn't do that unless he had flesh and blood. Let's not live fearing death. Let's live with eyes for eternity. Consider what follows death and live every day to make the most of that future The Lord, who humbled himself on your behalf, won that victory for you. Let's go to prayer. Dear Father, I thank you, Lord, for a reminder that we live in a victory that your Son has won for us. Not a victory over suffering and trials, not a victory over finance, not a victory over the needs and cares of everyday life. We will suffer with those things as anyone would in a sinful world. But, Lord, he won the victory over fear of death, over the penalty of sin, over a slavery to the enemy, so that we can live in a freedom to you and and, and in a service to you, Father. And I thank you for that gift, that grace. Give us each, Father, hearts to understand that fact, to stand up to our own fears, Through the knowledge that we gain through study of Scripture and through the growth that it provides in our hearts, Father. Let it drive us forward. To live more in the grace that you extended to us. To be servants, not slaves, of the enemy. I pray, Father, for this change in the hearts of those who hear it and need it. And for all of us, Father, the encouragement that it brings to continue living in in the grace that you've offered. I pray, Father, we would continue to grow spiritually, even as you may choose to grow us numerically in this room. Making us stronger for the tasks ahead. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.